I'm reading from Mark chapter 2 in the Church Bibles, page 708. A few days later, when Jesus again encountered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathiah the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath.
In 167 BC, Israel was ruled by a Greek king called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, mostly for political reasons, Antiochus was trying to actually get rid of the Jewish religion. And so he'd set up a puppet high priest in the temple in Jerusalem and he'd even put up an altar to Zeus in the temple and sacrificed pigs on it. Now, Antiochus wanted Israel to adopt Greek culture and so altars weren't just set up in the temple, they were set up throughout the land of Israel to Greek gods and refusing to sacrifice on these altars would actually mean the death penalty for you. At this time, Judas Maccabees responded by leading a revolt that in 165 BC was actually successful and they retook Jerusalem and for a short period, Israel was again liberated. But unfortunately, the dynasty that he founded itself very quickly became corrupted and influenced by Greek culture. And the pressure to take on the way of of life of the rest of the world, it wasn't as extreme as it had been under Antiochus, but it was more dangerous perhaps because it was more subtle. Then there was Herod, who died in 4 BC, who was a puppet king for the Romans. He wasn't really a Jew, though he was smart enough at times to look like one. But in his heart, he too fully loved and fully adopted the culture of the world around him, of the Romans and the Greeks, and he pushed it on his people. So for hundreds of years, faithful Jewish people, hundreds of years leading up to the birth of Christ, faithful Jewish people found themselves facing intense pressure to compromise. And many of them did compromise, including the the leading priests in the temple in Jerusalem. And the ordinary people of, of Israel found themselves having to decide how they'd respond to this pressure. Apart from compromising, there were two main responses that emerged. There were two main ways that the people of the time were looking for the renewal of their nation. So first there were the Essenes who completely gave up all hope in any human government altogether and their answer was to withdraw completely. They were looking for renewal, their way of looking for renewal was to withdraw, to be a pure, exclusive, strict community who kept the scriptures and kept away from everyone else. The other main response, though, was that of the Pharisees, who, like the Essenes, longed for renewal, but they they hadn't withdrawn from the temple or from daily life in Israel. They kept a popular influence among the everyday people. They were the ones who established the synagogues. And they looked for renewal by a renewed zeal amongst the people for keeping the law. In their different ways, both of these groups were asking, what would bring renewal? What would return the people to God so that God would return to the people? What we see today in this chapter in Mark is that Jesus has got a very different answer to both of these groups about how renewal comes. And it's an answer that starts to bring him into conflict with the leaders of these other movements. And as we'll see, especially with the Pharisees. Now, I remember from last week that Mark is writing down Peter's memories of his time with Jesus, uh, the life of Jesus. 
And you might remember from last week that chapter 1 ended with Jesus being unable to even enter into the town because of the crowds that he attracted. He was an instant sensation. But he's not necessarily drawing attention for the reasons that he wants to. Today, as the biography continues, we see that Jesus starts to take control of how he wants people to understand him. And even more than last week, we see Jesus demonstrate his authority and we see him begin to explain it. Mark picks up the story here after a bit of time has passed. So the hype has died down enough for Jesus to quietly slip back into this small town of Capernaum, about 1,500 people. But the word gets out that he's back. We're not told whose house it is that Jesus has come, come to, but he's probably come back to Peter's house, Simon Peter's house, where he was before in Capernaum. Houses back then were pretty small, and there were so many people gathered in this house that it's like Jesus is almost barricaded in there teaching them. And the people are gathered even in the doorway and probably spilling out into the street trying to listen in. And so there's no way anyone else is going to get in there, which is a bit of a problem for the people we meet next. Some blokes turn up carrying a paralysed friend. No doubt they'd heard about what Jesus had done last time he was in Capernaum. Maybe they'd met the leper that Jesus had healed, the leper who couldn't keep quiet about what Jesus had done. Maybe they'd even come looking for Jesus last time he was in Capernaum, but they'd been too late and he'd already gone. Who knows? But whatever the case was, they weren't going to miss this opportunity to see their friend healed. There was no way that they were just going to wait outside for Jesus to come to them. What if he slipped out the back through the courtyard? Or what if when he came out he was too tired? Or what if he was surrounded by so many people that they couldn't get near to him with the stretcher? They're desperate. They're desperate. Their friend is paralysed. And from everything that they've heard about this guy, they really believe Jesus can do this. We don't get told the background story here, like, did these four friends often carry their paralysed friend like this, up to the synagogue or out to beg each day? We don't get told if he's young or old, if he was born this way or if it was the result of a horrible accident. We don't get told if he has a wife and kids. We don't get the background story, but in a way we don't really need it, because it's hard to think of a sadder circumstance than being paralysed especially living back then. Is there anything more awful and desperate? These men can't get to Jesus, but they're not going to be stopped. They don't care what people think. They don't even care about the damage they're about to do to someone else's house. They'll fix that later. They climb up the stairs on the outside of the house, up to the second story, which which would have been open to the sky, and they begin to break through the roof, removing the mud and the reeds that lay across the beams. It might have looked something like this. Now imagine what it would have been like to be there in the house as this is happening. Like I said before, this is probably Simon Peter's house. And he would have been down there sitting in the crowd. Maybe he's feeling a bit nervous about having these teachers of the law sitting there in his own house. Maybe he's just nervous to have so many people crammed into his house. But then something breaks through his thoughts and he thinks, did I just hear someone banging something on the roof upstairs? Why are there even people up there? And no doubt these men would have moved quickly. They they didn't want to take the risk of being someone coming along and telling them to move along. 
It must have been pretty memorable to be sitting there, suddenly have mud raining down on you, followed by a bed being lowered on four ropes, with men shouting to each other things like, slowly, slowly, more on your corner, you're tipping him off. Now, whether Peter wanted to run up and tell them to push on or not, he wouldn't have had a choice. He was stuck in there like everyone else and there was no way the people in the doorway were going to give up their view of the action for him now to get out. There must have been a few minutes of confusion before people realised what was happening. But just as they figure it out, just as they realise that they might be about to witness a miracle right before their eyes, Jesus says something that I'm sure that none of them were expecting to hear. Mark tells us that Jesus sees things differently to other people. Like Jesus looks up at the men lowering their friend down and what he sees shining through is their faith. They have complete confidence that Jesus can heal this man. And so Jesus, like always, meets their faith with action. But it's probably not the action they were expecting. Look at what he says in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is Jesus' second time in Capernaum since starting his ministry. And he takes their incredible act of faith as an opportunity to extend their faith. They've come looking for healing. And they, more than others, perhaps, are more desperate. It's, it's what their friend obviously needs. But Jesus sees things differently. He speaks gently. He speaks with authority. And he says what we actually need most desperately is to be forgiven of sin. This is more a surprise for us these days than it would have been for them back then. They, they knew, at least theoretically they knew, this already. And the surprise for them is more that Jesus himself claims to have the authority to give that forgiveness of sins. But for us today, living in our world today, this can be a huge shock. We don't necessarily feel this need to be forgiven by God. And if anything, we look to Jesus to fill other needs in our lives, whether it's healing or meaning or purpose or fulfillment or happiness. But Jesus shows us here that more than these, more than anything, our need is to be forgiven by God. Jesus is not a, a nice addition to life, enriching us with religion, filling the hole in our heart. Jesus comes to answer a need more dire and more desperate. And the greatest need of our neighbours and our kids and our fellow Australians is the same. It's not education. It's not employment opportunities. The greatest urgent need of all humans is this, to be forgiven by God. We may not feel that need, but Jesus helps us to see things differently. He helps us to see ourselves through the eyes of God. But back to the story, because it quickly shifts from a question of need to a question of authority. Some new characters enter the story because the teachers of the law who are sitting there, they cannot accept that Jesus would have this kind of authority. Look at verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? They think that Jesus crossed a line. He's basically claiming to have the authority to do what only God can do, and that's blasphemy. Amazingly, Jesus doesn't challenge their understanding of what he's saying. He doesn't clarify his words. Instead, he backs them up. He says in verse 9, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? might be harder to actually achieve that, but it's definitely easier to say it. It's harder to say, get up and walk, because your words have got to be followed by some visible action. At this point in his ministry, Jesus wants people to know that he really does have the authority to forgive sins. So he says to the paralytic in verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he does it right there in full view of them all. This is an extremely powerful moment in the life of Jesus. Because for those who've got eyes to see it, Jesus has just shown that our greatest need is to be forgiven by God. And he has just publicly declared that he has the authority to personally give us God's forgiveness. This must have been pretty confronting for those teachers of the law and pretty confusing for them sitting there. And things just get more confusing for them from here on in. Because like them, Jesus wants renewal, but he seeks it in a completely different, unconventional way to them. So still in the Capernaum area, um, Jesus sees a tax collector and he calls this guy Levi to be his follower. This is a guy who collects money probably for Antipas, a, uh, a king like Herod, a descendant of Herod, a king who was in league with the Romans as well. A tax collector was an unpopular person because they were basically part of the problem. They support the corrupt, godless system. They've compromised and and they've sold their people out. But most people agree that it's a good thing to see a sinner like Levi repent of his ways and change his life. So even, even the teachers of the law think that. Not even them are going to complain with what Jesus is doing in calling sinners to repent. But the thing with Jesus is that he calls people to be a part of his close group without them having proved themselves. Surely Levi should mend his ways and demonstrate a change of life and then he might possibly qualify. So surely having people like Levi, a tax collector, amongst his close friends actually reflects badly on Jesus. And then even worse, of course, is that Jesus is seen to be eating not just with Levi, but with Levi's tax collector buddies and other sinners. Now, it'd be fine to them if Jesus was preaching at them on a street corner in the mall in Capernaum, telling them to repent from a safe distance, but he's eating and drinking with them in Levi's own house. In our kind of egalitarian, tolerant culture, it's it's easy to miss how confronting this is. But put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees and it's easy to see why they're confused. Their approach to renewal is to distance themselves from people like this. And for good reason. People like Levi 
are putting their own interests above the interests of their fellow countrymen. People like Levi have compromised and failed, failed their God. But look at what Jesus says to the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, when they ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He says in verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has got a completely different approach to them. Not only does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins, but this is his mission. It's why he's come. He's come to call sinners exclusively. And notice two things which we, his followers, all too often forget. First, notice that Jesus doesn't hold back from identifying that these people are sick. Jesus is not saying that sin is okay. He calls it for for what it is, which too often as followers of Jesus, we just don't have the guts to do. But second, notice that Jesus doesn't hold back from giving himself to these people. He gives his friendship and his time. And eventually we'll see that he holds nothing back. He gives even his life for these people. It's tragic that we as followers of Jesus through the centuries have missed this mission of Jesus. He's not endorsing them, but neither is he there to condemn them. He's there as a doctor among the sick. And this isn't something that Jesus is just doing on the side. This is what his mission is all about. Now, of course, we don't follow in Jesus' footsteps by being a doctor among sinners. We're there like Levi, sinners ourselves, calling our friends to come and meet this doctor. This approach of Jesus, it it clashes with the teachers of the law. They expect that it's the righteous who will be called to God's kingdom. But Jesus says it's sinners and it's sinners only. So great is Jesus' authority that his, his renewal, it's not overthrown by calling sinners. Instead, sin is overthrown by his call. Jesus' approach is, is so different that it's not just the Pharisees who are confused at this point. Ordinary people are, are kind of comparing Jesus and his disciples to John and his disciples and the Pharisees. And they're thinking that Jesus' group looks more like a kind of a party than a religious renewal. Jesus' followers, they don't even fast, whereas John's disciples do, and the Pharisees, they fast twice a week, and so they confront Jesus about this. And Jesus answers them in two parts. He says first in verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. These people, they've misunderstood the times because they've misunderstood who Jesus is. He's the bridegroom. He's the centre of the great party that the fasting was actually looking forward to. Fasting was all about mourning and, and longing for that future when God's kingdom would come. But to long for better times when the fulfilment of those times is there with you would be wrong. It'd be like fasting and being sad at a wedding. In the second part of Jesus' answer, he explains why they can't try to understand him and what he's doing simply by thinking that he's just going to continue what happened in the past. In verse 22, he says, 
no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. In the fermentation process, old, rigid bags are just going to burst. You need new, flexible bags. This isn't like a proverb where Jesus is saying what's new is always better than what's old. You know, Jesus isn't a progressive. He's, he's not criticising the old. Fasting was entirely appropriate and it will be again, he says. But what they've got wrong is to think that what he's doing just fits under what has gone before. As if Jesus is mastered and contained under some greater template. Unfortunately, it's actually quite common to try and contain what Jesus is doing in the world within the old, even today. I mean, you see it when Christians mistakenly think of church buildings as temples. It doesn't happen here for some reason. Or church leaders as priests. And the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice. These are all just mistaken attempts to contain what Jesus is doing within former Old Testament categories. But there are even more subtle ways that we try to contain what Jesus is doing. Whenever we try to fit Jesus into our tradition, rather than seeing our tradition come under his lordship, we're doing this. Whenever we attempt to contain Jesus within our way of doing things and our way of thinking or understanding things, our expectations on him, it doesn't work. Nothing and nobody can master Jesus. And where we try to let tradition or anything master Jesus, what often happens is that joy is crushed and the measure of the movement becomes its somber, pious, kind of religious character and it's got nothing of the power of what Jesus is on about. Jesus is doing something different. Something new, something still in line with the old and predicted by the old, but something that is completely uncontainable. To see what exactly is new in what he's doing, we'll have to wait and see as it unfolds in Mark, in Jesus' mission in Mark. But already we've seen some things. We've seen God's renewal comes through the rule of his chosen king. A renewal that's not achieved by strict observance of the righteous, but a renewal achieved by the mission of God's King, come to identify with sinners, come to call them to repent and follow Him, come to bring to them the great wedding party of the present and the future. The final episode that we see in this chapter shows even more powerfully than this that we just can't understand Jesus as coming under the authority of the old conventions. I think today we find it very hard to understand the significance that the Sabbath had to people back then. In those kind of renewal movements that I was talking about, one group took it so seriously that they wouldn't fight on the Sabbath. And so a thousand of them were killed on a Sabbath by the Greeks because they wouldn't even defend themselves. That's how seriously they took it. They thought renewal would come through strict observance of these kind of things like the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are disturbed when, just see, when they see Jesus' disciples walking along through the fields, snacking as they go. Now, it's kind of wrong for us to steal fruit over the fence of, of our neighbours, we all know that, but according to the Old Testament law, their law, this was permitted, they could do that. 
What the problem is, is that it's a Sabbath, a day of rest, and so work wasn't permitted, and harvesting, technically speaking, they're harvesting, and they're doing work. At this point, Jesus could have engaged in a a debate with the Pharisees about the technicalities of the Sabbath, and probably the Pharisees would have loved it. But instead, Jesus does something outrageous. He doesn't argue that the disciples are not really working. Instead, he draws attention to an obscure precedent in the Old Testament where King David, when in need of food, did what was unlawful. He ate the bread that only a priest could eat, along with his followers. It's a pretty confusing thing that Jesus says here. And the Pharisees must have been wondering what Jesus meant by this. But he tells them exactly what he means in verse 27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was intended for the benefit of people. It wasn't intended for God's benefit. Jesus is actually pointing them back to the purpose of the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath first as a way for people to remember his goal for the creation, rest. And then the Sabbath also became a day to remember God's goal of saving his people from Egypt. Again, rest in the promised land. The Sabbath, it was always a sign for God's people which pointed them to God's ultimate goal to win for them rest. Rest from war, rest from sickness, rest from hunger and most importantly, rest from sin. In other words, the Sabbath was about longing and anticipating God's renewal. It wasn't a kind of of work that you could do to somehow force renewal. It was never meant to be a kind of harsh, miserable slavery because that doesn't point to the joyful rest that God would win for his people. Now at this point, the Pharisees must have been wondering, is Jesus saying here that it's okay to break the law? You know, is he saying David broke the law so we can all just break the law however we like? But again, that would be to miss who Jesus is. Jesus makes it clear that that's not what he's saying. Instead, he goes on to say in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus says he is the Lord of the Sabbath, which means he is the one who determines what the Sabbath should look like. But more than that, he is the one who brings the purpose of the Sabbath to its fulfillment. This is the Lord who wins for his people that rest, that renewal that the Sabbath longed for. At the end of this chapter, we can see that Jesus' renewal, unlike other renewals, is completely bound up with his personal authority. He personally forgives sin. He personally pursues us as sinners. He personally calls us to the party and he personally commands our destiny to be the Lord who achieves for us and for all his people the rest that the Sabbath pointed to. What Jesus is doing here is is radical. The old pointed to what he's doing, but the old could in no way contain him or master him. Jesus' renewal comes not from what the people will do, It comes from him. Next week, we'll see that the Pharisees just refuse to accept Jesus and plan to actually destroy him because 
Their view of renewal doesn't fit at all with his view. But as we finish today, it's worth considering what we think will bring us renewal. Like the people back then, we can feel the pressure from our world to compromise, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in less than subtle ways. How do we resist this pressure? How do we see the church renewed? Or a slightly different question, but a related one. How do we think that we're going to achieve spiritual growth this year? Everything we've seen today in Mark is still true for us. Our growth doesn't happen by our discipline. Our discipline to read our Bibles or to pray or to overcome sin. It doesn't happen as we purify ourselves by withdrawing or by strict observance of some way of living. It doesn't happen in our discipleship programs or in coming to church or going to community groups or in one-to-one accountability groups. It doesn't happen in any of these things unless these things bring us to a person. Unless these things bring us to the one person who has the authority to answer our greatest need first and our every need second. Our renewal only happens by being with Jesus. It happens by being a disciple of Jesus, hearing his call and experiencing the joy of walking with him day by day. It's so basic, of course, but it's what we're so prone to forget. It's in knowing Jesus and only in knowing him in a real and personal relationship that we can know God's forgiveness, God's joy and the rest that he longs to give us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for his heart, for the lost, for us. Lord, for his authority to forgive our sin and his, his courage to point it out. Lord, we thank you that Jesus wants to bring us to true renewal, to true rest. And Lord, we thank you that he is willing to give even his life to achieve it for us. Father, help us always to remember that our growth, our renewal will only ever come as we meet the Lord Jesus, as we know and love him and walk through life with him. Lord, help us to never forget this and help us, Lord, this year and always to walk through life with our Lord and our Saviour and our friend who laid down his life on our behalf. Amen.